Welcome to another episode of the Panty Personals. And thank you to all of you who've been listening or watching on the IELTS YouTube so far. And of course, for talking back to us on social media. It means a lot to us to hear that you're enjoying it. And of course, it's nice to know I'm not getting all dressed up for nothing. So thank you. Because of course, I love an excuse to get all dressed up. But if I am a very public gal who loves glitter, the spotlight and a live, loud, drunk audience, my guest today is a man who, despite his extraordinary music and songs, often shies away from the limelight. It's Adrian Crowley, the singer-singer, according to people who know that kind of thing, and with his big, deep, velvet voice and cinematic stories in his songs. He was born in Malta, but dragged up in Galway and these days calls Dublin home. And that voice, well, what can I say? It's like, well, I'm going to go with the blackest, darkest, deepest pint of Guinness in a pub pre the smoking ban because it has a slightly acrid edge to it. <laughs> and his new album, The Watchful Eye of the Stars, is mesmerizing. You know, Adrian, hi, nice to meet you hi. properly. Um, Likewise. You're the first person that we've ever had a proper discussion beforehand about how to describe your voice because I had written down big, deep, rough velvet voice. Day one, I stole on board a northbound ship. No one saw me or my shadow on the gangplank. For that I am thankful, I am thankful. And, you know, Helen and John and uh, Connor there, they were, they didn't go with rough velvet. They didn't feel that was right. Even though words like gravel was thrown out. And to okay. me, that is rough. That is so rough. in the end, I thought torn velvet. I like that because there's still that softness. But the broken edge. I of, like that. Yeah. That's the quality that I like about it. That's why I went to the deep pint of Guinness pre-smoking yeah. ban. In my hiding place. Under the calico And it's drowsy work When you stay invisible So I drifted off And we put out to sea Hi. It's funny that we haven't really met yeah. properly before, partly because we're the same age and Ireland is small, um, but also, of course, because your great mate, Conor Horgan, is my good mate, Conor Horgan. And Conor, of course, among a long list of dishonorable things and shameful things that he's done and bad <laughs> life decisions he's made, he directed the Queen of Ireland movie. Yeah. So... That's a really tight connection there, so I'm I'm surprised you yeah. haven't met yes. before. What's your excuse for knowing Connor? Well, we had sort of um, glanced by each other at gigs for years, but we only got to know each other in Paris, actually, in 2017. We were at the CCI, the Centre yes. Cultural yes. de day. We were both there at the same time for the residency. So, yeah, we clicked there. 
And of course, because Connor has basically adopted France as his second home yeah. since then. And you're married to a French woman? or That's right, yes. yes. So Connor decided he was just going to stay on. A few of the artists did, actually, over the previous years. And it's just, you know, you're in Paris working on the thing you love. Yeah. And I think maybe there's nothing better than that. So Yeah. And I suppose they they were quite freewheeling and they thought, well, let's continue freewheeling in Paris. Well, I can see the temptation. Now, I've never done the, you know, the artist residency there at the Centre Culturel d'Irlandaise, but I have done my show there. Oh, yeah. And it was quite an experience. I mean, a fun one. So I did, I can't remember, a few nights there. And it's my sort of standard monologue stand-up draggery show. And so on the first night, the audience was just a lot of Irish people who live in Paris. Yeah. They get all the references, all the jokes. It's all in English or whatever. But then like the next night and for the following nights, it's sort of a lot of middle class you know, ladies and their husbands, you know, French ladies who just go to things in the local cultural center. Yeah. And so it was so funny. And I'm sort of standing there all in English telling some pretty wild <laughs> stories about, you know, life in drag. And there's these like very well put together middle-aged Parisian ladies leaning over to translate bits for their husbands and stuff. It was quite nutty, but I loved it. But they responded well. Yes, they did, yeah. It's a really fun and sort of brilliant place for, you know, artists and creators. Yeah, you feel the history at every corner of the street, every crack in the pavement, Mm -hmm. every little square, every little park there's something there every window you look up to i imagined it to be like that when i was there i felt i felt the ghosts of writers around me and um lounge singers and uh, poets well now i can't let that reference to ghosts slip by and of course we were also talking about conor horgan at the same time so the film is in my head because of course there's an amazing documentary kind of about you i mean it is about you Kind of, yeah. It's called sort of. The Science of Ghosts. Yes, yes. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, it was directed by a really good friend of mine, Niall McCann. So he was making a documentary about the Glasgow music scene um, called Lost in France, and specifically about the Chemical Underground, the record label. Mm-hmm. And because... It, which is your record label. Yes. So that's how we met, because he wants to talk to me do an interview me for that film but in the end I wasn't a part of the film but we kept meeting up and talking we became friends Mm. and we'd talk and talk we'd have coffee go for a walk have a pint and um, we just drifted from the subject you know which is very much the energy of the film (laughs) yeah exactly so one day he said to me in the typical Nile way he was like you know self-effacing and he was sort of saying uh, stop me if this sounds ridiculous, but uh, maybe we could make a film together. And I was like, I'm not going to stop you. What did you have in mind? Mm. So we found the story in in a very circuitous way and managed to get funding. You know, the... The Arts Council. Yeah, the Real Art Fund. People who want to have a look at it, it's called The Science of Ghosts, and you can get it from the IFI streaming website. That's right. And then from reading the reviews, they're all very positive. But one thing that they did not give me was a sense of how funny the film is. Oh, that's good to hear. Um, I mean, that you think it's funny. It is funny. <laughs> it's very funny. Um, so 
it was a really enjoyable watch. I thought I was going to be watching, you know, something very uh, esoteric yeah. and, and all that. But yeah, it's yeah. not at all. It's very funny. Um, while also being nonlinear and nutty mm-hmm. and all of those other yeah. things. Um, but um, the experience of making it seemed very much like so many other things, very collaborative. Yes, definitely. Well, I enjoyed every second of it. And also, I found the process really exciting because the way we did it was um, Niall asked me to record myself telling stories and then share the stories with him and Matt, who he was making the film with. And they would get together and do rough edits. But I wasn't in the editing suite. I'd sort of be shown snippets of where they were with the film at the time. And I was always so excited, obviously. So I had this kind of distance to a degree. See, that's interesting to me because one of the impressions I get of you is that you are quite shy, isn't the right word, but you're an unusual uh, front man for your own work in the sense that you do pull back quite a lot. You're not a out there, covered in glitter kind yeah. of guy. And so the experience of the film for you is you were very much involved in it, which is like so different from my experience of Connor making a film about me because I didn't look at a single thing ever. I didn't want to know anything about it. I would just turn up when he asked me to and try and ignore him. I mean, that was it. And so I never saw a single thing until it was you know, finished. Um, and yet you were very involved. You know, the two of you were making a movie together. Yes, because... It's not a straight-up documentary. Yes, it's I would not, say yeah. it's a docudrama, and it involved writing. So mm. we co-wrote it, in fact. So that's why I, I was that close to the process. Yeah. But in terms of how it was all put together and everything... And you, sorry, I you had some back. experience from film anyway, because you've written scores for films and... I have had, yeah. And I love writing, and I love writing stories, and I love telling stories. So this felt perfect. But I, the one thing I said to Niall at the beginning was, I'm not really comfortable with a documentary being made about me. I just don't think I'm the right subject for mm. that. Maybe find someone else. <laughs> no, I, I totally get that. That is why I had no wanted no involvement with Connors, because it feels weird. And, and even just having people following you around as something that is kind of ordinary to you, and they have a camera and a, you know, a student with a boom, yeah. you know... It, it's a weird position to be in. Mm-hmm. So so I get that instinct. But anyway, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. I also, I can't let it pass without mentioning the most harrowing thing I've seen on film in so long. There's this bit <laughs> where you're in Coney Island and someone tells you the story about an elephant from the Coney Island funfair and all that. I don't know what the year was, but um, Thomas Edison was around because... The elephant killed someone, you know, accidentally. And it was decided that the elephant had to be put down. And Thomas Edison volunteered, I assume, to execute the elephant by electrocution to show people the power of electricity. And she tells the story, and it's very sad. And it happened somewhere around here. Oh, no way. It must have. That's the... Renegade elephant. Killed by Thomas. Then in the film, they have bl- a 
actual original footage of them murdering the elephant by electrocution. And it took my breath away and I yeah. haven't been able to stop thinking about it yeah. since. Yeah, it was something we we thought long and hard about whether or not it was too much. It is horrific. It wasn't too much. Well, in my opinion, it wasn't too much. I guess because there's some distance with the black and white and everything, the quality of the film. <laughs> but it was a real gut punch. <laughs> and it has really stayed with me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, oh, that's not a complaint. That's no, a I know, thing. I know. Yeah. And absolutely, in, in, it's such a punch in the stomach when it happens. And also in terms of the um, sequence of events in the film, and then my character is alone again mm. with the afterglow of that horrific story. Yeah. And then you wonder, did any of that conversation happen? Was it just a ghostly thought drawn from the history of the place? And there's a, a sort of great line at the end, and I'm probably paraphrasing a little here, but it's interesting in relation to what you also said about not wanting to do a straight of dogmy. You say, um, like, you know, a, a documentary needs a hero and I'm not a fucking hero. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, was that written? That was written, yeah. actually. That was one of Niall's lines <laughs> that I just kind of imbibed. And the the reason why I don't see it as a film about myself is is for that reason, actually. So it's sort of like a parallel world where... You, you see Adrian Crowley on the screen, but it, is it the Adrian Crowley that you're speaking to right now? Didn't I, I see you the other day? No, I don't think so. You are kind of familiar. Um, you too. Are, are, you, are you Alistair? <laughs> Alistair? No, but that's, that's kind of funny. Why, why would you say that? My surname is Crowley, like yeah, Alistair. Alistair Crowley. Alistair Crowley. That's what you mean. You're Alistair Crowley. Yes. No, I'm not him. <laughs> I'm not him. I'm Adrian. Adrian Crowley? Yes. So you're not Alistair Crowley the Satanist? <laughs> no, but that's, um, that happens a lot. I felt like I was a metaphor for the artist, if that makes any sense. You know, whatsoever. it does, especially in the context of the movie. I mean, it is, you know, it's surreal and episodic and fleeting. And I mean, it isn't a straight up document in the sense that, um, you know, I, I didn't come away from it feeling like I, I knew loads more about you mm -hmm. or certainly in any sort of chronological or sort of sense. I mean, I might have known more about your spirit but not any bio biographical yeah. details. Yeah, exactly. Now, I sort of, I wasn't intending to talk all about the film at the beginning. Okay. Um, so let's go back a little bit and talk a bit more about your actual biographical details, because oh, they're yeah. actually pretty interesting too. So you, your dad's from Galway, but your mum is from Malta. Now, there aren't many people from Malta, so that already is a little unusual. You were born in Malta. Then you were, for a couple of years, in the Cameroon. Then you were mostly raised in Galway. Yeah. Then with a few detours, including France, where you picked up a partner, <laughs> um, you've been calling Dublin home since yes. the 90s. Earlier, because I came to Dublin in 1986. You see, we so. are the same age. We were born the same year. I don't know what month you were. I'm November. August. August. So you're a little older than me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that makes us 52 listeners. Yeah. Um, uh, so 1968. 
greatest year to be born, of course, in the summer of love and all sorts of things. So you're born in Malta because your mother was from Malta. And the story I read is that your parents met in South Africa in the middle of a sandstorm. Not South Africa, oh, not North South Africa. Africa. Oh, North Africa, mm-hmm. in the middle of a sandstorm. That's right, yeah. If I was you, I would really dig into that to find out, are they just romanticizing? Because meeting in a sandstorm, it's too perfect. I know it is, isn't it? Was that true, really? It's true. It's really true. And any chance I get, I try and get my parents to retell that story. Mm. Because every time they do tell the story of how they met or the months leading up to when they met, there's always a, a new detail. And it does sound like something from a film. It does. It's very David Lean or something. Yeah. But so your parents met in Africa. Then there was some political turmoil and yeah. they went to Malta for a while and you were born mm-hmm. there. One of the other little details that cropped up in one of the things I read about you was that when your mother was eight months pregnant or something with you, she had to dive into the Mediterranean yeah. and save somebody's life. Yeah, that's true. And I and the last time I spoke to her, just a couple of days ago, I, I asked her about it again. And um, for, for some reason, I thought she saved a man's life. And she said, no, no, it was a girl. And she was really far out from the shore. Um, it was uh, in Malta. There are these sort of like um, beaches that, well, sudden drops into the water. So it's really deep. And it's uh, people sit there in the sun and it's just like these concrete platforms and people dive in and swim out. But she found herself there alone with no one else around. And she picked up on someone in distress. But she knew this girl was drowning and she was heavily pregnant in the July heat of Malta and she was trying to get someone's attention but everyone was too far away to hear her so she said there's nothing more I can do but jump in I have no idea what being heavily pregnant does to you in the water does it make you more buoyant (laughs) I don't know it mustn't be easy no I can't imagine so that's true yeah and then you were born how long after this dramatic episode a month later, I was born. So yeah, um, my my dad was telling me how this, there was a coup d'état in in um, Sierra Leone, and it meant they had to leave, and it was a very traumatic um, time and very violent. Um, how had so, your parents ended up in Sierra Leone? A man from Galway, yeah, a woman from Malta. My father worked for this um, engineering firm that took him around Africa, you know, on um, infrastructure and building and airports. And he, so he he was working on these different projects. So, And what was your so mum doing? My mother um, was living in Libya. She, she spent a lot of her childhood in North Africa, in Libya, Ethiopia and Eritrea, because her father's business was in Libya. Uh, even though they were mostly based in Malta. Mm. So just by chance, my mother and father met. What was your granddad's business? He was was a merchant. He had a winery and distillery, uh, I think that's what you call it, in Libya. Actually, I should know exactly what the business entailed. I can see my my mother going, you should know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that anyway... (laughs) They, they were based there. And your mother's a published author. She's written, she wrote a book about, about her younger life in Africa. Yeah. It's called 
beyond the Ghibli. The Ghibli is a wind from in North Africa, you know, like the Mistral. Yeah. So the, uh, the book, it's an autobiography. It's basically going from her first memories up to the time when she moved to Ireland and then it, it stops. So, and I remember my younger brother was a bit, a bit peeved that he didn't make it into the book <laughs> because he was born just after. Sorry, story son, you were the boring part of my life. <laughs> uh, uh, Vicky Crowley, Beyond Ghibli. Beyond the Ghibli. Beyond the Ghibli. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so back to you. So your parents went to Cameroon afterwards for how, how long with their newborn yeah, just son? T- t- two and a half years or so. So, yeah, so, so I do I you have any there. memories of Cameroon? I do. It's um, apparently you're not really supposed to be able to remember things from that far back in your life. But I have this strange thing that happens to me. You know, apparently the sense that you have most powerfully connected to memory is your sense of smell. Yes. So I do get these aromas. For years and years, I was wondering what was happening. I'd. I'd get this aroma of something and suddenly I was at the beginning of my life and I was in an exotic place but not with a full picture but just the sensation and this kept happening and as soon as I would smell get this scent it would disappear and I was living in France for a while and and I was walking through this park in Toulouse I remember one day it happened and it was powerful so I just stayed with it and I conjured up an image of me sitting under this tree. And I thought, that has to have been Cameroon. So what is this now? So I keep forgetting the name of it, but it's a, it's a type of plant, a flower, when it's in full bloom. And it's got this really incredible aroma. Well, I find it incredible. Well, I am absolutely on board with that idea about a smell and memory, because my earliest memory is a smell. And I, if I get it ever again, I, I'm always transported immediately back. It is this kind of plasticky smell of drinking out of one of those plasticky sippy cups. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. sippy cup. That oh, is the yeah. earliest thing I can remember. And, I, you know, that's very young. What age are you mm-hmm. when you're using a, one of those spouty sippy cups? One or two, two. Yeah, so and that is my earliest memory. So from Cameroon to, to Barna. Yeah which I have an irrational hatred for, I have to say. Yeah. Because when I was a teenager, the only competitive um, tennis match I ever played for Ballinrobe County Mayo um, was we were a little team and we went to Barn and they had a really fancy little court. And, oh, yeah. and, club, and we felt like the country, you know, like we have our bit of Tarm Academy in the corner of a field to play the tennis on. And they had like a proper court. Was that in Trusky West? Up high up on the hill. It was high, yes, over the sea. Yeah, Yeah, it was beautiful. Mm -hmm. Another reason why I hated them. (laughs) It all just seemed so nice, you know. So, how's Barna? Well, whenever I go back, it's usually I'm in a taxi or someone's giving me a lift because I can't drive. So, I'm looking out the window and I'm thinking, that's. I remember crawling through the undergrowth there into a hut I made in a blackthorn tree, you know? And now it's just. 500 houses mm. or something and there are traffic lights as well and traffic jams um that is the same all or even Ballinger of county mayo you know the field and the that we all played in is now just a giant housing estate yeah know? 
But so when you are sort of like thinking or feeling, you know, your life, where you've come from and all that, does Malta play a role at all or a, a small one or a large one? I mean, are you a Barna man? Not really. I suppose growing up, I always felt that I wasn't really, I, I always felt like a blow in, I suppose, mm. which is fine. In school, I think I was probably regarded as, in a strange way, exotic, because everyone knew that I wasn't born in Galway City. I don't know. It was, mm. So I was always cast in this light of being from somewhere else, if you yeah. know what I mean. And well, even having a mother with an accent or something was exotic in 1968 yeah, here. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. I suppose, even though I didn't visit Malta very much in my teens, we went on a family trip one time. And then since then, as an, as an adult, I went back. But in my mind, it was this magical place, mm. which I was very proud of. Yeah. And what about grannies and aunts and all, or uncles or cousins or whatever? Yeah, well, they would visit all the time. And so so when my grandmother would come from Malta to visit, there was just the sound of Maltese being spoken in the house, obviously, mm. which I never learned. I never learned the language. I only have a few words. So... Yeah, it, I mean, it um, It wasn't, uh, it was ever-present in, in my upbringing, in a sense. It was always there. And if you go to Malta Maltese. now, do you feel a connection to it? I do, actually. Mm. I was over there um, four years ago, and I think I had some kind of psychic experience walking through this particular street in Valletta. I was taking photographs, I love taking pictures, and it was just at dusk and I had this eerie feeling well I was in a very beautiful street so like I mentioned before I sometimes you know you can feel the um, ambience in an, in an old street and you just there's something about it wants to make you stop and and just soak it in so I was taking photographs and I and I kept coming back to this one stretch of the street and I, I just, it was like I had a deja vu or something. And then, and I took a photograph and I think, yeah, there was a, the street name in the picture, which I didn't really notice till later. And then my aunt told me, oh, that's where your great grandfather lived and, and your great great grandfather. And they, they must have been speaking to you mm. that moment, you know? So. Do you believe in. You know, that the dead could speak to you? Uh, in uh, in a sense, yeah. It's not necessarily them speaking, though, I think. I think it's your own internal ra radio that is able to pick them up mm -hmm. as well. Well, we I don't know how long you're talking, but for, for a while, and we've managed to avoid talking about your music so <laughs> That's fine. That's fine with me. I um, hate talking about it. I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> But, but does this, does your background or, or Malta or this sort of semi-nomadic background of your parents, does that play into your music or has it? Have you mainly written about those things? Or Usually the way I write isn't so based on, say, like literal references, like a diary. It's not yeah. necessarily like that. But I think the broadness that comes with traveling definitely opens you up to different, say, how would I put this? 
it's like you can easily slip into someone else's shoes mm. and experience their life through your own eyes and everything. I feel traveling has done that for me. I think so. It's played a part in it. Well, your your songs are, I think I describe them as cinematic in the introduction because they often are, sort, you know, they, they paint pictures and, and do tell stories. They may not be specifically your literal story or whatever, but that surely must play into these things. I mean, I, I did wonder if you were psychic, to be honest. Oh, yeah? Um, well, for example, um, you have this incredible song, The Shut-In's Lament. Little bird of sunshine I watch you on my windowsill Rescued from my nighttime My visitor, my newfound friend Little bit of golden Straight out of the blue And I, you know, listened to it and then I watched the really beautiful video and I just assumed you, you wrote this during lockdown about lockdown. I mean, it, it, it is exactly that. And then I read, actually, you didn't, you wrote it before all of this. Yeah, that's right. It feels like you're exactly describing what we've all been doing for the last year. Yeah, that is spooky when that happens. I wait for you to sing your morning song. It happens quite often in, in music and um, not just to me, I suppose. Someone told me that they assumed another one of the songs was about the lockdown too, underwater song, because and they assumed all that imagery was a metaphor for what we were experiencing at the time, or what we are experiencing now. Shutting the Mind is like about a bird, you know. Yeah. There's a bird flying in and, and the, the, you know, you're a imagine what it might have seen and so on yeah. Recurring theme, it turns out, with you. There was larks, you know, in an earlier album. Yeah. There's crows. Your your even your Instagram is crow, and I get that oh, that's yeah. from your name, Crowley. But there's um there's crow song. There's bird of sunshine in um the Shudden's lament. So birds is a recurring theme with you. <laughs> they fall away when you. And speaking of birds and your music, finally, you're going to do um, something for us, although it's spoken word. Spoken word isn't your, you know, typical oeuvre, mm-hmm. but you do, you use spoken word in in, in part yes. fairly often. I do, yeah. It's something that's been showing itself intermittently in, while writing my albums. I think it's something to do with how a story say I'm, I'm writing a story and I'm thinking it's going to be a short story to be in a book for instance 
but then it jumps back into the song again and it and I let it in. So th- this piece. Piece, yeah. yeah. Um, you want to do, it's called Ascension of Larks. Um, tell us a little bit about it first. Well, that is something I wrote during lockdown quite recently. I was working on a manuscript for a novel <laughs> and, uh, and uh, this passage, it was... One of the characters was talking about wanting to leave their, their body and they were talking about how they fantasize about not just being a bird but but being a whole flock of birds and not being just one particular kind of flock of birds but a whole variety of flocks of birds and he just went on and on in like this kind of rant so it was pages and pages long and it made sense in the story but at at one point I thought I'm going to lift that out now and put it to music which I did and then I got in touch with Niall who who we we've just been talking about from the science of ghosts and we we made a short film based on that why larks well larks were just one one of the birds in the story so they're all different kinds cuz if I was going to imagine you know a flock of birds being another separate entity it should definitely be starlings you know murmuration is mm-hmm. Has that quality about it? Um, yes. And uh, I've written about starlings. But then there were all these other birds that I hadn't written about too. So, Well, let, this yes. is a good time to hear it then. Okay. So, uh, the Ascension of Larks. Sometimes I wish I was an ascension of larks. Climbing higher in our song. Ever closer to God's eye. Into the dizzying blue. Our harmonies shrill and echoing in the lofty chamber as we climb up the rarefied ropes closer and closer to the outer reaches where wings no longer have purchase on the veil of steams that drapes the earth. Our tiny hearts sending Morse code into outer space. Sometimes I wish I was a bevy of swans crowding on full sail, our tails, our rudders, passing under city bridges over the deep black mirror to our magnificent necks, chest bones splaying the water as we spread out across the estuary, then going about and gathering to return again upstream for no other reason than to parade our stately arrogance. Sometimes I wish I was a jubilee of eagles in slow revolution high over a valley, our turning figures like ash suspended in the updraft, a thousand hands high over pines and clearings and hunters' paths as we shriek and shriek and shriek again, heads cocking, eyes blinking, V-tails tilting, shadows colluding our heraldic emblems in a broken specter against the towering cloud. Sometimes I wish I was a reel of Virginia rails 
stealing through the reeds and rushes, planting our feet widely on broad floating leaves, our red needle beaks parting the murk and salt marshes, our bodies low quiet shapes, wedges in the shallows, pushing through stems and tall tight leaves, discreet and content to haunt the brackish silent margins. Sometimes I wish I was a season of killdeer, foraging in the low lands, between the steps of cattle, supping in standing water and scouring pebble shores for shell pieces to adorn nests with gifts from the ocean, black necklaces around our throats and crying out from rooftops as we step along ridge beams to feast on flies plucked from the roof tiles of low-pitched houses with open skylights. Sometimes I wish I was a screaming frenzy of swifts sickling through the October air, swooping under stone arches and breakneck speeding low over rivers thick with rainwater, then spiraling high around church steeples in a vesper to the crepuscular heaven. Sometimes I wish I was a slurp of sapsuckers clouding in a flurry over a crown of branches, then dropping like stones with wings tucked in to a grove of birches. Red caps darting as we make our work to hammer hold the bark and drain the sap into our bellies and then flurrying up again to scatter down grove to grove and on and on and on. Sometimes I wish I was an unkindness of ravens lurking and black-eyeing from iron railings and inking the dusky air over skeletal sycamores, raining superstition with carrion breath, cloak wings frayed, slowly beating a death knell tempo to our sniggering throats, all in a dark mess of coughing ghosts. Sometimes I wish I was a deceit of lapwings stalking the soft margins of floodwaters in the height of midnight darkness and across furrows freshly turned over in dark fields of breaching nightworms. Our crests unfurling slick black wisps of stolen tendrils. Sometimes I wish I was a herd of wrens, round-headed and brownie, hopping along in our yellow crowns, rulers of all winged creatures, kings of the fence and kings of winter. 
sometimes I wish I was an ascension of larks. It's beautiful. Oh, um, but I was imagining you very much enjoying coming up with new collective nouns. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you have this other really beautiful song, um, uh, The Crow Song, yes. which is telling this really gorgeous story about you and your brother, your kids, and you find this crow with an injured wing and you nurse it back to hell. And then it has a slightly devastating ending. Um, that's what I want to ask you about. Mm-hmm. Because you've nursed this bird back to health, and then the song implies that you then define the bird later dead. But is that part true? Because how do you know it's the same bird? Exactly. Exactly. Solitary crow with a crippled wing. sky and I looked to the sky but then but then I looked to the sky so you you sort of say well is but it because your, it's your boyish heart believed it to be the same bird I think I think it did, and then and then I was thinking, well, maybe it wasn't him, and then I looked to the sky. So, yeah, that's that is one of the songs w- where it's pretty much taken straight out of life experience. Yes, that is biographical. Yes. Yeah. So, I want to talk to you about your music properly. Um, like, there's two things that I just in reading about you that are were. Well, one made me hate you and one made me very interested. <laughs> the, the one that made me hate you is the one that I have with all really talented musicians in that. Is there's a story where you, you, I mean, you like weird instruments and sort of collecting them. And there's a story that you're in, a, I can't remember, there's a second-hand shop or somewhere and you, and you open this box and there's a clarinet in it and you take it home and then you just realize, oh, I can play the clarinet. Just, oh, turns out I can play the clarinet. <laughs> And the next day, you're recording uh, using the clarinet. And I'm like, that fucking prick. <laughs> like, I, like, that is so outside of my ken. You know, that, that you can be that talented and have an affinity with music and all that. You can just pick up something and start playing it. And so the other thing that made me just very interesting is you said you dream music sometimes and, you know, complete pieces, sounds. So has this intense deep musical connection always been with you it has but i didn't really know what to do with it and i couldn't really play very many things at the time i'm actually in reference to the clarinet it's the only reason why i could get a sound out of it straight away is because i had played the saxophone years before and it's very similar the uh the reed is very similar and everything but yeah, as a as a teenager, I, I suppose I'd gone to piano lessons and I'd taught myself guitar. But I didn't really consider myself proficient at all, and I still don't. It's just I, I use instruments as a vehicle to try and lift the song up and to pick out melodies, you know. Are you from... A, is it a musical family? Do your parents play or sing? My mother plays... The piano she 
introduced me to uh, Chopin waltzes, you know. I And I, I remember, well, I, I learned quite a few of them for a while. And my dad uh, has a really powerful voice and um, was always the one to sing at parties. Mm. But he never played an instrument. He doesn't play an instrument. Your dad is into the crooners, like all our dads. Yes, exactly. Frank Sinatra and Absolutely. Elvis? I think so, but mainly Frank Sinatra was his main one. And Frank Sinatra, actually, I only began to appreciate just in the last few years, mm-hmm. really. Well, speaking so. of appreciation, because I mentioned in the introduction that you're sort of a singer's musician or a musician's musician, and you are, um, like in the industry, you're... You're, you're very highly respected and very highly regarded by other singers and musicians. I read that Ryan Adams was asked, name, name the greatest the songwriter that no one's ever heard of. And he mentioned you. First of all, I was annoyed on your behalf for him saying no one's ever heard of you. <laughs> but also I was thrilled because, you know, that's quite a thing for somebody to say about you. Yeah, I think that was 19 years ago now in the Rolling Stone. Well, a friend of mine bumped into me in... Wexford Street, and he is a massive Ryan Adams fan, you know, and he was like freaking out and he was really excited, you know, really flushed with excitement. And I was like, what's up? And he said, he could hardly say it. And he was like, you're in the Rolling Stone. Ryan Adams talks about you. And I said, no, 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 you've you've made a mistake. Sometimes um, people say Alistair Crowley, you know, and you think (laughs) they've just said me, my name. No, but he was probably talking about Alistair Crowley. The, the so, Satanist. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, no, that's obviously a mistake. Darn, just forget it. So he went away and he came back with the Rolling Stone magazine and he showed me. And I was saying, oh, it's obviously a misprint. He must have meant Alistair Crowley. And then he said, no, but look down. Does Alistair Crowley have an album entitled this? And I was like, <laughs> all right, okay. It was me then. When reading about you, a lot of people referred to you in those kind of terms. Um, you won the Choice Music Prize. 10 years ago mm-hmm. for a season of sparks that yeah. album in, in a way it does sometimes feel like you're a musician's not secret isn't the right word because you had your own successes but that in some ways the buying public hasn't necessarily caught on to the extent that other musicians and singers and songwriters have so the wind won't blow it all the way so the wind won't blow it all away. But that doesn't really bother you. And that is part of your, this sort of almost, not shy isn't the right word, but not pushing yourself forward quality that I get from you. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's fair to say. Though I do feel I've been becoming more and more out of my shell over the years and maybe discovering more about my voice and how I connect with people. And splinters, put it in the sheltering place, in the shelters of the wind. I think in the last few years that's um, really come up even more. Uh, and uh, uh, I think for many years I was my demeanor maybe was apologetic or something and uh, <laughs> you know um but quite happy to be like that um and i never really wanted to 
make a fuss about what I do or anything. I mean, the other thing is, we discussed earlier about how to describe your voice, but you've had nine albums now, is that right? And listening back to some of the earlier stuff, your voice has changed quite a lot. Yeah. Is that a natural change as you're getting older or because you're sort of sitting more comfortably into, into it as an instrument or whatever? Yeah, absolutely both of those, I'd say. Well, with singing, I think it, it's a peculiar psychology, singing itself. There is a psychology attached to it and how uh, you can make it more difficult for yourself than necessary. It's a, quite an illusion, actually. Over the years, I've just found a way to allow my voice to resonate the way it's supposed to. But then also getting older and where the vocal cords become more floppy or something, <laughs> I don't know. But the, the chamber of your body becomes very really much a part of singing. Yeah. Well, it's funny because your voice and sometimes also reminds me of, as we mentioned earlier, our mutual friend Conor Horgan, because he also has this that very deep sonorous um, voice. I mean, you know, there are fetishists out there who would love to have a recorded conversation of the two of you talking. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about the new album and the song you're going to do from it for us. Yes, this song, it's called Bread and Wine. I think of it as a two chord trick because it just has two chords and it does. And I, I've recorded it with um, some incredible musicians, a core of Venus Lunny, the violinist, Lisa Dowdo, viola, Kate Ellis, the cellist, and um, John Parrish. He plays drums on it. He produced the album. Um, the whole album was just a joy, you know, to create. And I only ever allow people in who I think are amazing and who I love. And the song itself just mysteriously arrived in my life. Don't really know how, but it's me in the song anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, okay, well, I can, let's hear it. Okay. <laughs> Seaside town, I'll stay here for a while. Through my window, I can hear the ship bells ring, and I awake to the smell of the brine. The stray dogs here follow me around, they seem to know their kind, and I play the piano in a harbor bar. They pay me in bread and wine. Bread and wine It's taken me so long to write to you Well, I just couldn't find a pen And then there was the quest for writing paper And it just went on from there I have it in my mind to tell you more When the time is right 
But meanwhile I'll be playing waltzes For bread and wine For bread and wine So how's life in the city of lost poets? Did they ever catch that thief Who stole the relics of Saint Valentine Who says romance is beat I can picture him running across the rooftops Laughing all the way Who knows, maybe I'll bump into him here And I'll share my bread and wine My bread and wine I'll stay here for a while Through my window I can hear the ship bells ring And I wake to the smell of the brine I play the piano in a harbor bar For bread and wine I play the piano in a harbor bar For bread and wine I'll be playing the piano in a harbor bar For bread and wine And they pay me in bread and wine Bread and wine Gorgeous. Um, Thanks. You have um, probably an unfair reputation, sort of, for always writing sad songs, but they're not actually always sad, yeah. but there is maybe a melancholy tone or something. Maybe, yeah. Uh, somewhere in the stuff I was reading about you, there's a sort of funny story where a friend challenges you to write a song about a party, and, oh, yeah. you, write, and you write about leaving the party. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is a happy song. Yeah, I suppose it is. Ish. There's a little bread that you left On the glass there's a little sigh of regret When you laugh there's a perfume ghost That trails along the avenue There's a little lie and a little truth Lost on you Do you think of yourself as a melancholic person? No, not not especially. Uh, no, I don't think so. I actually goof around a lot. I think I'm a bit of a joker, to be honest. But uh, it's sort of like... Um, it reminds me of when I was in school. I think I must have been about eight. I was having a great time, you know? And the teacher asked me to stay back for a chat just after the bell went at the end of the day. And she said, Come here, Adrian, sit down. I was like, yeah. She said, are you okay? <laughs> you know? And I felt my heart going, oh, well, she's 
worried about me, you know? And I was like, yeah, why? She said, you just always seem to have a really sad face. And I just said, no, that's just my face. So musically, it's just my face. <laughs> I could stay here in the story And turn the pages If you want me to Well, I mean, that is probably why I, you know, before watching the film, I wasn't expecting it to be funny. So I'm guilty of the two for, you know, projecting onto you. That's fine. A melancholy quality. You have two kids, 11 and... 18. 18. So you can't be a melancholy dower, <laughs> dower an 11-year-old and an 18-year-old. And the 18-year-old is, is really into music. Mm-hmm. And your, your daughter, Alice... Max yeah, that, and Alice, right? That's right, yeah, yeah. Alice, 11, and she's already a, a, a fully paid-up actress. That's right, yeah. yeah. She is a natural. She's going to be in the new film by Donald Foreman, which I think is coming out in early next year. And I was bowled over because I brought her along to what turned out to be an audition. I thought it was just like an informal meeting with Donald in his mum's house and um, the lead actress so she, who was there to see Alice and uh, they improvised a scene, you know and Alice just brought it to this level that I would never have expected Like, did uh, you know she, she was a performer? Uh, absolutely, yeah that? I mean, ever since she was very small she would she loves to sing and she loves to tell funny stories and she loves to get into roles, you know, mm. but always at home. So, you know, there's there's a different dimension in, to it when when you're asked to do it on cue mm. in a in an unfamiliar place with strangers. You and know? Alice is, is in The Science of Ghosts. She is, documentary. Yeah, that's right. But, yeah. but aren't you both in a film? Yes. And then there's this other film called In the Woods with a Dead Dog, which is a short film. It's doing festivals at the moment directed by a dear friend of mine, Vera Grazia Day. So it's a dark comedy. And uh, I, I play lead, and Alice plays my daughter. Mm. And uh, it was an amazing experience. It's quite... Yeah, it is a very dark film, uh, it is, and it is funny. It's kind of funny in the way that... Well, I suppose you would laugh out loud in, in parts, yeah. But it's desperately... The main character is um, in in turmoil constantly, so it's almost laughable how how much in turmoil he is in, you know. Um, and Alice plays an exceptional. She just puts on an amazing performance. Everyone was bowled over. And then Max, the eighteen-year-old, is into music and mm-hmm. he's a musician. Um, and I always kind you know wonder, you know. Obviously, my parents aren't drag queens, so there's no, um, but, you know, people who go into the same things as their parents. So was that almost an inevitability or he did it despite you or? Um, I never pushed him towards it. But the thing is, there was music in the house all the time, as Mm -hmm. you can imagine. And I always just 
I let him do what he, what he wanted. I, I, I always, we both just encouraged him in whatever, both Alice and Max and whatever they were interested in. I remember the first time he started playing the piano and the look on his face when he repeated the same three notes in succession. I think he was three, three years old. And uh, he looked at me and I thought, oh, he's got the bug, you know, mm. and he's he's always been uh, hungry to learn more. And he plays the Ilan pipes, too. So, yeah, he's a traditional musician as well. Yeah, there was uh, I was reading about your own sort of discovery of music and all that and picking up a guitar for the first time. And you almost were doing it in secret for quite a while. Not because your parents were anti-music, you know. <laughs> Why were you doing it secretly? Uh, I, I suppose I was just too shy to play in front of anybody. And the the idea of someone asking me to play them a song was just frankly terrifying. Mm. So I just kept it to myself. And And you, Max, then growing up in a house where, as a parent who's a musician... And music is everywhere, I assume, did not have that same... That's right, yeah. Well, thankfully, I, I um, shed that neurosis a long time ago myself. But yes, he he's never had any qualms about playing in front of people. So if he, was, if he had learned to tune on the pipes, practiced it, and assumed, right, now I've, I've got that tune down, yeah, I know that tune. So if someone asks him... Could you play me um, Dark Slender Boy? And he'd go, yeah, no problem. And he'd take out his pipes and play it. No well, problem. That's all the trad tradition, isn't it? Just whipping it out. And yeah. Well, and also, you know, he's into trad and the and pipes and into hip-hop and all that because he's an 18-year-old in this yeah. day and age. And neither of which really strike me as your particular bags. So does he bring things to you that you wouldn't have found on your own? Oh, yeah, Absolutely. And also he comes downstairs, knocks on my door and says, uh, if I'm working on something, piece of music, he'll say, that thing you were playing earlier on, can you play it again? play to him again and he he asks me is that for anything in particular and I'm like no I'm just noodling around here so he comes back down and he says can I just sample that what you've just done so that has happened then of course i i hear his music all the time and the music he listens to so now it's part of my life yeah. and that must embed its way in, in some way you know mm. so the current album is your ninth. I mean, you do churn them out. So are you already planning the tenth? And music is your thing, but there is also writing and film scores. Yeah. So what is next? Well, 
I'm going on this tour this autumn around Europe. You hope. I hope. <laughs> and I tell myself allowing. it's happening. Of course, there's a question mark that hovers over all plans like that. But I, I, I suppose I, I never feel like I work hard enough and I'm always pushing myself and I always feel I could create more stuff. So I'm always Doesn't pushing really feel myself. That, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. So what is next? I'm just, I'll, I seem to always have about seven different things going at the same time, which I'm trying to finish right now is no exception. <laughs> no. Um, and it's funny when I knew, you know, you, you were coming on, um, I messaged Conor Horgan and I said, oh, yeah. I am Chloe's coming on. And I said, you know, what, what's the bullet points? You know, and he said, and one of them, he says this, they fucking love him in Europe. Oh, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's nice, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, they do, I think. Is touring, you know, because you do have this reticent shyness and you said you've sort of gotten over that mostly, but is touring something you love doing? For my supper Is my midnight absolutely love it I adore it and I think let's see it was about yeah nine years ago I, I started um, touring around Europe consistently and yeah it was it felt like an epiphany that first tour I just really really felt I was connecting with all these people in all these amazing places and uh, I love traveling anyway and obviously I love music and singing so the two together you know that's what touring is and it's um, very intense yeah and it it can be exhausting for many years i was touring alone by train all around europe carrying my stuff you know two guitars sometimes and uh, that is entirely crazy. alone yeah entirely alone and the rain gets sweeter and the salt turns to sugar And the rain gets sweeter Oh yeah, and I, and I know every bump in every like path, footpath and cobblestone in Utrecht and Paris and Amsterdam, all these places because I've dragged my suitcase across those places and I, you know, rushed for trains. I know every single broken elevator that still isn't fixed <laughs> all around Europe. Every single broken escalator. <laughs> um, but now, yeah, the last big tour I did, I, I uh, had a driver and tour manager. And I was thinking, this is so much easier. And my booking agent and, and friend said to me, yeah, I've been telling you that for nearly 10 years. So that's the way I do it from now on with someone, someone with me. I have to say, I, I love the touring thing too. It's really hard work, but it feels like the work you're meant to be doing. Yeah. yeah. You know, in front of people, doing what you're meant to be doing and all. My only thing about doing it alone is after the gig, it's just you. And I prefer in that, at that point, after the gig, to be in a thing, doing shows with other people. 
yeah. you know, you're gonna have the drink and the whatever. Absolutely. Yeah. There's something funny about walking off, hopefully to applause, into a quiet room and you sit there on your own. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Adrian, it's been lovely to meet you properly and uh, to speak to you. Um, it's been a very um, charming um, afternoon. So um, thanks very much. Oh, a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Well done. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Really that was enjoyed good it. Good and easy. Nice. I mean, people are always nice.